This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 16, The Second Sex. All right, rainy Monday, but I'm going to talk to you about Simone de Beauvoir today, and hopefully it is going to be uplifting. And we're going to end with a famous Polish insurrectionary slogan, which will hopefully be uplifting, which I've put on the boards of Vasho i Nasho, Nasho i Vasho, and I'll get back to that in the end. Um, so last time I talked to you about Hannah Arendt, you know, who brings together, like the Frankfurt School, a lot of these currents that we've already read. You know, there's Marx, there's Hegel, there's Kant, there's Husserl, there's Heidegger, all of, the, like, all of that stuff is kind of woven together. Um, and what, would, what I want to stay with you in particular about her attempt to understand totalitarianism is this idea of the loss of subjectivity. You know, at the core of this kind of evil is a loss of subjectivity on the part of both victims and executioners. You know, and even though she ends origins of totalitarianism with comments about radical evil, and she's later going to stop using that phrase and start using the phrase the banality of evil under the impression of the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem, there's a very important continuity there. You know, Eichmann's greatest crime is his failure to think. And that doesn't make him better than other criminals. It makes him worse. The greatest crime is a failure to think. And it's connected to subjectivity. To be a subject, now we go back to Descartes, right? Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. To be a subject, to embrace subjectivity is to think, is to be a thinking subject. If you're not thinking, you're effectively an object. Um, so this need that thinking is work. Thinking is work and it involves anguish. This is what we get from Sartre. It involves making choices. It involves making choices that are not easy. It's easier to fall into bad faith, mauvaise foi, in Sartre's terms, or it's easier in Heidegger's terms to fall into das man selbst, the they self, the conformist self, who just goes along with the crowd who doesn't really take hold of their own authentic existence. So this, the burden of subjectivity is going to be with us through today. You know, both the, the, the crime of taking away subjectivity, but also the crime of relinquishing one's own subjectivity. And the fact that subjectivity is work, and making choices is work, and thinking is work. This is why I gave all of you my totally unsolicited suggestion that whenever you need a break from that, I can recommend indoor cycling classes in particular. There's like a whole hour, somebody else makes all the decisions, and it's really quite a safe space because the range of decisions being made is extremely circumscribed. You stand up, you sit down, you turn the lever to the right, you turn the level to the left, but basically nothing bad is gonna happen. And you can burn several hundred calories too, added bonus. Um, break from thinking. But the point is thinking is work and subjectivity is work. You know, and this is at the heart of where I wanna get you with Simone de Beauvoir today, you know, and her understanding of feminism. Um, so one of the things that this reading of subjectivity 
does. And you see there are elements of this in, in the Frankfurt School, there are elements of this in Arendt. There's going to be particularly strong in Simone de Beauvoir. You're going to see a kind of blend of Hegel and, and Heidegger. You're going to see a kind of reading of, a rereading of the master-slave dialectic, in particular of the phenomenology of spirit, now through an existentialist lens. And that theme will stay with us really through the rest of the course. Um, but who was Simone de Beauvoir? She's a character I think you'll like. Um, I think you'll enjoy becoming acquainted with her. Um, and somebody pointed out to me that there were pages missing, two pages missing from one of the readings, and I have put in a request on Course Reserve for them to rescan it. So hopefully any moment now, Course Reserves will reappear. I said it was urgent and they missed two pages. So hopefully they will reappear with the two page, with the correct scan from the memoir. Um, Okay, so let me, let me start, as usual, with an anecdote to get you excited about reading Simone de Beauvoir. If you guys haven't read her before, you're in for a treat. You're gonna, I, think, I think you're going to like her. Um, I think your generation will appreciate her. Um, so years ago, I was... Well, let me, let me first kind of set this up. So my, my mother was born in 1948, and her younger sister was born in 1951. Um, and in those three years of difference, which is not that big a difference, but there's a generational shift because my mother was a child of the 1950s and my aunt was a child of the 1960s, of the anti-war movement, of the hippies, of, of feminism, and my mother missed all that. She was a little bit too young. Um, and so years ago when I was kind of interested in, you know, in, like when I was working on my dissertation, I was particularly interested in this lens of generations and generational change as a kind of category to, is a kind of category to look at the past. And I, I said to my aunt, I said, well, what did you think when you were 17 years old and your big sister, who had like just turned 20, was already getting married? I mean, wasn't that terrifying? Didn't it seem to you like you were still children? Did you think, what was she doing? Who gets married this young? And my aunt said, well, no, not at all, because that was completely normal. Everybody got married then. If you didn't get married at then, you were going to be an old maid soon. Well, we were all very happy. We thought that was the appropriate moment. And I said, well, you say that, but you didn't then get married three years later. You didn't get married until you were 30. Yeah. And that's a big difference. Like between 20 and 30, a lot, you'll see, a lot, a lot will happen in your life between 20 and 30. I wish you all good things happening in your life between 20 and 30, but it's a big decade. The difference between getting married at 20 and getting married at 30 is, is big. And so I said, three years later, you didn't go and get married. You could have, but you didn't. You didn't get married until you were 30. And she said, well, in those three years, between the time my sister turned 20 and I turned 20, everything changed. And I said, well, what, what changed for you? And she said, well, we read Simone de Beauvoir. Um, and so I, 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 I preface today's lecture with that, that I'm going to take you through, I'm going to tell you a bit about her and a bit about her existentialist ethics, and then I'm going to spend the bulk of the lecture talking to you about the second sex. And this was a book that really reached out. It's kind of, it re, the, the influence of it far expanded beyond philosophical circles or expanded beyond university circles. This is a book that really moved generations and changed the way people thought about gender relations and changed the way people thought about women, changed the way people thought about sex, about marriage, about pregnancy. Um, so I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll see if it holds up for your generation, but I'm, I'm excited to have you read it. 
Um, so Simone de Beauvoir is one of these very fascinating figures of the 20th century. She comes from this upper-class Catholic family. She has a very privileged childhood in the center of Paris on the Boulevard Saint-Germain. Um, her father loses most of his money, his considerable amount of money during the First World War, and that I think quite radically changes her life because there are no more dowries to marry off the daughters. And so in one way it's a blow, and on the other hand I think it opens up a certain space. The family gets used to living without servants. Um, she's a very precocious child. You see that in her memoirs how she's always thinking and always questioning, um, how she couldn't stand the a power that adults had over her. Um, she writes about the, what it meant for her to learn that there was no Santa Claus and the self-criticism, like, how could I have been so stupid? Um, she went to an elite Catholic school. She dreamed as a child of becoming a nun and then as a teenager lost faith. And you'll see this come up again and so when we talk about Edith Stein, what it means to kind of go through a religious upbringing and at a certain point when you're quite young, dramatically lose faith and a kind of shift in worldview. And she will remain throughout her life committed to atheism. But what will stay with her is this idea of transcendence, this idea of a beyond, of kind of there's a border, there's a boundary, what can we do to cross it? to get to that other side that is more. Um, as I, I told you in the Sartre lecture, she meets Jean-Paul Sartre in 1929 when she's 21. They study together for this famous French exam in philosophy um, that very, very few women had ever taken at the time she took it. And she had this feeling that she had actually met someone who surpassed her in intensity. And she writes about him, you know, Sartre corresponded exactly to the dream companion I had longed for since I was 15. He was the double in whom I found all my burning aspiration raised to the pitch of incandescence. So she's very ambitious. She's ambitious kind of spiritually, even that kind of atheist way that like, and a kind of ex like a very existential, can you go beyond? You know, can you create yourself? Um, and she also shares with Sartre this obsession with writing and writing as an existential question, to write or not to write, big a question. And what does it mean to be a writer? The calling of the writer, you know, what it means to put words to paper. Um, they read each other's work. They, will, they, they were part of a circle of writers, philosophers, thinkers, Famously, Camus and Rémi Oran and Raymond Oran and uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, um, who I, I put their names on your handout, as well as Alexandra Kozhev. They were, all of their work in some sense was in dialogue. You know, and again, this is another one of these encounters. Like if Sartre hadn't met Simone de Beauvoir, you know, in 1929, what would have happened? Would we have gotten French existentialism? You know, we don't know because so much comes out of those encounters of people thinking in dialogue. Um, you'll see when you read her a lot of influences that you know. There's Hegel, there's Marx, there's Freud, there's Bergson, there's Husserl, there's Heidegger. Uh, in 1931, Sartre proposes marriage. As we know, she tells him not to be silly. Um, 
but they remain together in an open but committed relationship, sometimes living in various menage a trois for the rest of their lives. And they remain in dialogue for the rest of their lives. Um, there's a Roman a clef about one of these menage a trois called She Came to Stay. Um, I, I now want to pivot a little bit and talk to you for a few minutes about Alexander Kozhev, um, who was one of the central philosophical influences in their circle. He's their generation. He was born in 1902. He comes to France from Moscow. He is interestingly one of four philosophers who will be decisive and critical in translating and interpreting German phenomenology into a French context, and all four of them are native Russian speakers. Um, it's Lev Shestov, it's Alexandre Koyre, um, Alexandre Kozhev, and uh, Emmanuel Levinas, who we'll talk about in a subsequent lecture. But that's just a kind of interesting footnote. Um, the important thing here about Kozhev is that he, he obsessively read and reread Phenomenology of Spirit. And he had this seminar in Paris in the 1930s where they obsessively read and reread Phenomenology of Spirit. You'll see that this comes up again when we get to the 1970s in Eastern Europe. Jan Patochka has a famous seminar where they read and reread Being in Time. Um, so Kozhev has these seminars in which you know, some of their friends are going to and talking about, and then the lectures are eventually going to be published, and you can now read them in English translation. I think the title of the book is just Introduction to Phenomenology of Spirit. Um, I've always regretted having missed that seminar because this was clearly like the place to be. Um, but what Kozhev does is he's going to come up with a reading of Hegel heavily inflected by Heidegger. And that interpretation of Hegel in general, and in particular of the master-slave dialectic, is going to be very central to French existentialism in general and to the second sex in particular. Um, so Kozhev, you know, following Heidegger, has this idea that the world is never completely independent of Dasein. There's not a gap between us and the world. Um, and he's going to replace the, the words nature and the world with this word, like in French, le donné, which is very um, Husserlian influenced. Le donné is just the given. And Husserl likes to talk about givenness, gegebenheit, you know, that which is given. Again, like one of these ordinary words that they give this special philosophical oomph to. What is given? The given. And the given, and this idea of replacing the world with the given is a little bit of a combination of Heidegger's idea of Dasein ist immer schon in der Welt. Dasein is always already in the world. And Heisenberg's quantum physics um, observer principle that you can never be the fly on the wall because in order to measure anything or analyze anything, you've got to put yourself in there and then you've already interfered. So again, it's like there's no, there's no Archimedean point. There's no fly on the wall point. There's no point of non-interference. There's no point of non-involvement. Le donné for Kozhev is always an interaction. It's always an, it always involves some kind of both givenness, but also transformation, you know, on the part of Dasein. Transformation by man of itself. So again, this is man both shapes the world and is shaped by the world. You're always in that interactive, interpenetrating paradigm. Um, 
He then kind of mixes that with this idea of negation. So Ladone starts to feel like very Heideggerian. Then there's negation, which feels very Hegelian. He kind of smushes those two things together. Koshev's idea of negation is destruction overcoming in a very Alf Hebung-like Hegelian sense. And it always implies a negation of the given is a transformation of the given. Um, and man for Kojev is always negation. Man is negation of the given. So man is always overcoming and somehow negating and pushing back against that which is given to him. So it's, it's essentially, you've got to kind of, again, put that in your head and just kind of let it be there for a while. He's blending Hegel and Heidegger. And this, this space of nothingness, this space for negation, is our space for creative existence. You know, again, without this nothingness, this is very Sartre-esque, right? Without this nothingness, we don't have any space for freedom. So for Ko Kozhev, we'll say man is thus nichtsein. You know, man is not being, man is nothing, and that nothingness is our space for freedom. Negation is freedom, it's historicity, it's individuality, it's freedom as action. Um, I'll, I'll read you a quote here. In, in remembering the given which he was and which he negated, man remains specifically determined by its concrete characteristics while nevertheless being free from it because he has negated it. You know, so again, this is, you're always already thrown in, you're in a given situation, um, you're always interacting, and you're always pushing back. There's always a kind of space, a space of nothingness, which is your space to push back, to transform. So also, everything is always moving here. Nothing is static. Again, like Dasein, man is always up to something. You're never just sitting around passively. You're always doing something. Um, okay. Um, let me now, let me now take you to this circle of people in the post-war years. One thing I just want to note is that they start up, you know, Raymond Aron, Merleau-Ponty, Simone de Beauvoir, Sartre, they start up a journal in the post-war years called Le Temps Moderne, um, Modern Times, you know, which is a whole other famous chapter of intellectual history. And in the first issue, maybe the second issue, but I think it was the first issue, Sartre writes a famous essay about engagé literature. Engagé literature, the role of the writer or the philosopher to take a position, in this case, to take a political position. And this idea of being engagé, of being engaged, is connected to this idea of commitment, of decisionism, of resoluteness. And, it, and it's in the context coming out of the German occupation of the French collaborationist government coming out of the experience of Nazism in France. You know, and looking at, from a distance, the experience of Stalinism in the Soviet Union. Um, and there's going to be a feeling that you have to take a side. You know, and, and Sartre and Dubovar are both going to take the Soviet sympathizing side, which is a subject of, of enormous angst. Okay, um, the second sex is originally published in installments in this journal, in Le Temps Montaigne. Um, Raymond Aron soon breaks with that group in, in protest over the journal's communist sympathies. There's also going to be a big dramatic break between Sartre and Camus um, over this issue as well. At this time, right after the war, 
Simone de Beauvoir lays out what's probably the best articulation of existentialist ethics in a long essay, you know, short book um, called The Ethics of Ambiguity. And it's about the ethics of avoiding mauvaise foi. It's about the ethics of avoiding bad faith. And it, bad faith here is really all about the temptation to flee from one's freedom to flee from the burden of one's subjectivity. You see there's a concern with Hegel. She's trying here to work out a relationship to Hegel. She's trying to work out a relationship to Marx. She's very sympathetic to Marx, but she doesn't like the determinism. And this comes up again in the second sex. She doesn't like the determinism. She doesn't like, she needs to find a space for human agency within kind of Marxist teleology and eschatology. Um, she also takes from Heidegger this very strong notion that you have to accept human finitude, our existential condition that we are all being towards death, that our lives are finite, that we're mortal, you know, as a defining feature of the human condition. Um, that's the context for our making decisions. The context for our decision-making is that we are finite and we are moving towards our own death. Um, Ethics, she says, presupposes failure because life involves moral dilemmas. You know, life involves moral dilemmas and sometimes there are no good choices. Sometimes there are no innocent choices. You know, often there are no choices that don't involve causing suffering to innocent people. You know, that's what we have to face with eyes wide open. Um, she also follows this idea that it is this lack, this absence, this space of negativity that allows us to create positivity. The positive comes from our negation of negation. That man is first negativity and that's a, a precondition of our space to self-create. Human existence is what creates values. There's no one else, there's just ourselves. Um, and she's going to take from you know, her religious childhood this idea of transcendence. Can you get to the other side, some higher state? And she says what transcendence really is, or the possibility of it is preconditioned by the acceptance of freedom in this life. The acceptance of freedom not in some other life, in the afterlife, on the other side of the mortal world, but here and now in this life, accepting human finitude and responsibility. And it's in some ways, it's a kind of manifesto celebrating freedom with all of its angst and all of its pain, you know, and all of its burdens. That freedom, she says, is the source from which all significations and all values spring, to will oneself moral and to will oneself free are one and the same decision. Um, it is always, she says, on the basis of what he has been that a man decides upon what he wants to be. So again, you see this issue, the relationship between the ansoi and the porsoi, between facticity and transcendence. We don't start from a tabula rasa. We don't come from nowhere. We can't pretend that we're born into a purely empty space because there's always a given. You know, we don't start hanging out in the, in the ether with nothing pushing back against our decisions. We're always already, already thrown into a world, you know, in which things exist and we have a past. Um, 
And on that basis, we decide how we're going forward. Um, ethics, she says, and this becomes almost a kind of slogan, I put it on your handout, ethics is the triumph of freedom over facticity. So facticity is connected to the, the ansoir, the in itself, our geworfenheit, our thrownness, what already exists in the situation in which we find ourselves. We can't pretend that situation doesn't exist. We can't pretend we're on Mars and not on Earth. You know, we can't pretend we're in the ocean and not on land. We can't pretend we can fly, you know, as opposed to walk. We always already are in a given situation, and then on that basis, we can push back. But there's already a given. Um, okay, I just want to spend a minute mentioning this, this very long Roman Akhleff. She writes about her life at, with Satra and Camus and these other characters in the immediate post-war years, which if you want to understand that intellectual history, it's, it's a very useful novel. I, I think it's a little bit overwritten, but you know, there are a lot of, like, there are a lot of details. It gets a little repetitive. There's a lot of sex. Um, that gets slightly repetitive, but um, but it, it does. You see immediately like which character she is, which character Sandra is, which character Camus is. But it really does lay out all the philosophical, political, existential dilemmas they're having. Um, and one thing I want to want to mention here is that in this book, you know, is, so she is a psychoanalyst. Her name is Anne. She's married to Satra, who appears as a much older figure than she is in the book. Um, they have an open relationship. She goes to America for, I think, two or three extended trips and has this affair with this writer in Chicago. Now, one of the things that's significant about this that I want to I kind of bookmark for you is that this American experience, and especially the American experience in Chicago, gives her an understanding of American race relations she had not previously had. You know, because she's looking at, I mean, she's coming from France, she goes through the experience of Nazi occupation of the Vichy collaborationist government. She goes through the experience of watching the Holocaust. She has a sense of Jews as the other and how that played out. Now she's going to get a sense of what it means for black Americans to be the other. Um, and when she writes the second sex, she's going to be thinking about women as the other. So now you have these three cases. And the three cases are going to provide you know, a kind of paradigm, you know, and a basis for comparison that's not clear to me she would have had in the same way without that American experience. Um, okay. Um, I'll, I'll get back to that in a second, but I want, to, I want to just read you one quote from a monologue that she puts in, in the mouth of the um, Albert Camus character here. And a lot of this, a lot of this novel is about moral dilemmas. You know, and it, it's about accounting with the resistance, accounting with those who were cowards during the war, accounting with those who were opportunists during the war, deciding who to protect, deciding who to persecute, who to prosecute, you know, who to force to take responsibility. All of these involve very tricky moral dilemmas in which in order for one thing to be righted, someone else is going to have to be wronged. Um, and the big moral dilemma lurking in the back, background is the support for the, for the Soviet Union. Given that it was Stalin who defeated Hitler in the end, given that the choices were Nazism or Stalinism, are you going to give your support to the Soviet experiment? 
Um, and the character who's not able to do it at the end, who's going to break with the Satra character, is the Camus character, whose name is Henri. And here, here I'm just going to read you this very short monologue he has about his reservations of working with the communist. Um, what he held against them most of all was treating people as things. If you didn't believe in their right to freedom, in their judgment, in their goodwill, then individuals weren't worth bothering about. And if you do bother, you do it badly. But that particular grievance had no meaning except in France, in Europe, where people had attained a certain standard of living, a minimum of autonomy and sanity. When it came to huge masses brutalized by misery and superstition, what, after all, did treating them as men mean? They had to be fed, that's all. American domination meant the perpetual oppression and undernourishment of all the Oriental countries. Their only chance is the Soviet Union. The only chance to see humanity delivered from want, from slavery and stupidity is the Soviet Union. No effort then must be spared to help her. When millions of men are nothing but animals bewildered by need, humanism becomes laughable and individualism a dirty lie. Judging, deciding, discussing freely. How can anyone demand those superior rights for himself? Henri plucked a blade of grass and thoughtfully chewed it. Since in any case you can't live the way you'd really want to, why not renounce doing so completely? To lose yourself in the bosom of a large party, to blend your will with a huge collective will. What peace, what power. You have only to open your mouth and you speak in the name of the whole earth. The future becomes your personal accomplishment. Considering all that, it might well be worth it to submit to any number of unpleasant things. This is kind of like the kernel of that moral debate about apologies for Stalinism in the post-war years. Um, okay. So the second sex, um, which, co which comes out in 1949, is essentially contemporaneous with this time. You know, we're looking at these post-war years. She's looking at, she's coming out of the experience of the resistance and the weakness of the resistance and the Holocaust. Um, this is a book that will have revolutionary political implications, and I, you might, and I hope you will, read it in other classes with a kind of view specifically to those political implications. Because I have limited time, I'm gonna to try to take you through, it's a very serious philosophical argument, I'm gonna to try to take you through the philosophical part of the argument, you know, and see how she gets to where, where it is, as opposed to the political implications of that. Um, the point of departure is kind of phenomenological. We're always already in the world and we're always already in our bodies. The body is very important here. And there's a, a kind of phenomenological approach to the body and descriptions of the woman's body. And then we're gonna have an existentialist critique, not of men per se. She likes men. She likes men a lot. And you see this in this book. It's not, you know, it's not against men, it's against patriarchal domination. You know, and she'll continually make this distinction. She doesn't want to destroy them. She's hostile to domination. She's hostile to patriarchy. She's hostile to oppressive institutions. You know, she doesn't like oppressive traditions. She doesn't like oppressive habits, conventions. Um, she likes sexuality. She likes passion. She likes eroticism. She really doesn't like marriage. And she really, really is disgusted by the idea of maternity. To say, this is like the, this is the point in the book where I never quite related to her. There's a very visceral 
there's a very visceral distaste for the idea of pregnancy in particular, you know, and maternity in general. Like, there's something about it that kind of chills and, and disgusts her. Uh, there's a visceral rejection of, this, of, of the idea of a creature growing inside her, which she just can't stand. She talks about the curse of reproduction. Um, maternity, she says, is a strange compromise of narcissism, altruism, dreams, sincerity, bad faith, devotion, and cynicism. Um, okay, I'll bracket that now. <laughs> It's really a book about achieving subjectivity. And it's a book about achieving subjectivity that draws on this Hegelian master-slave idea of recognition through the other. That we're always, we're always trying to be self-affirmed through some kind of gaze of the other, through some kind of recognition of the other. Um, so what does it mean to not simply then be an object to allow the other to achieve subjectivity? Um, how, do you, how do you achieve subjectivity going back again to that master-slave dialectic? If the man is the master and the woman is the slave. Um, how do you get out of that role where you're being treated as an object? And she's going to say it's women's responsibility as well not to live in bad faith to take responsibility for their own subjectivity and for not allowing themselves to be in the role of the object and the other. What you see she values most, what is consistent here, is her freedom. Freedom come, keeps coming up as the highest value, this need for freedom. Okay, so if you remember the Banat, the hippopotamus book, the most important thing is the freedom to choose. The hippopotamus has to decide for herself. But there's also the, the freedom to choose and the responsibility to choose. And the fact that we always make choices within a given situation. She begins with the question, what is a woman? And says, to state the question is to me to suggest at once a preliminary answer. The fact that I ask it is significant. Now, this should remind you of the beginning of being in time in the hermeneutic circle. You're all, you already have a preliminary understanding if you're even able to articulate the question. So there's no way to start completely from the outside. You're already starting to ask the question from the inside. And then she moves on to the observation that women is always defined as somehow relative, contingent, derivative with respect for man. A man, she says, never begins by presenting himself as an individual of a certain sex. It goes without saying that he is a man. Man, she says, is the absolute type, the default type, the normative type. Um, human being, she says, always first and foremost means man, and woman is seen as some kind of negative of man. Man is normative, woman is somehow derivative or, or deficient. She is defined and differentiated, de Beauvoir writes, with reference to man, and not he with reference to her. She is the incidental, the inessential as opposed to the essential. He is the subject, he is the absolute, she is the other. Okay, and here is Hegel, there's always an other. There's no, uh, there's no self-identification of the subject without recognition through an other. The master always needs to be recognized by the slave. 
The category of the other, she says, is as primordial as consciousness itself. Otherness is a fundamental category of human thought. And here is where these three cases become important because you get the Jews in Europe during the Holocaust. You know, you get black Americans in a radically different world across the ocean in Chicago where she's speaking another language, you know, and then you have the experience of being a woman versus being a man, you know, and then you've got a lot of reading of Hegel <laughs> and the master-slave dialectic. It's this idea that there is always an other. It's fundamental. There's always an other. There's no, you just are who you are unto yourself. I, I'm going to go back to the Barbie movie here. How many of you have, guys have seen the Barbie movie? Okay. Okay. So remember the end where it's like, Ken is me. Ken is me. Like, you don't, like, I don't need to have myself reflected back through somebody else, doll in this case. Like, I am myself unto myself. You know? So here's for drawing on this Hegelian reading where there's no self-identification without an other. You always need the other. This is what's very Hegelian about that Barbie movie. Okay. Um, so there's also, there's, there's, you know, there's native peoples for all the colonialists. She's all, there's workers for the bourgeoisie. There's always an other. You know, and then she's kind of extrapolating, and this is before the, the Algerian War for Independence, but it's going to be a case that also works for her. Um, and she says, but there's something kind of specific about the relation between men and women, because there's a kind of primordial mitzine of, of being with in this case, because the bond, the bond that unites her to her oppressor, she says, is not comparable to any other. The division of the sexes, she writes, is a biological fact, not an event in human history. You know, so all of these other cases of other, you know, are constructed, are created, are invented, are historically contingent. Whereas the difference between men and women has a biological for her irreducibility that racial relations don't have, that these other relations don't have. You know, and for her, it's, I, I know you could say this was just not like she was not very woke at the time and people weren't talking about, you know, non-binary gender. And, but what's important for her here is the fact that a woman can get pregnant and a man cannot is an irreducible difference. The vulnerability to getting pregnant that you have as a woman is a difference that cannot be made to go away by some kind of cultural construct. You know, and this, you'll also see then, if you study the politics of this, how issues about contraception and abortion become very important. The vulnerability a woman has because of her body that cannot be, that, that cannot be make, made to, you know, be constructed in some other way. Okay. Um, all right. So she goes back to Kojiv at this point, you know, and this idea that, that Koja will also articulate reading Hegel, that it's only by being recognized by another, in fact, by many others, or in the extreme, by all others, that a human being is really human for himself as well as for others. This idea of recognition, it's anerkennung in German, Hegelian recognition. You know, the master's in a bind because he needs recognition from the slave, but he's reduced the slave to the status of an object, and therefore the recognition provided by the slave can never be satisfying enough because you need recognition coming from a subject. 
And Kojev says, in his nascent state, man is never simply man. He is always necessarily and essentially either master or slave. There's always that reciprocal relationship. And, and Simone de Beauvoir kind of takes, takes up on this. She's like, the basic trait of a woman is being an other in this totality that is the condition in which we live. The other in a totality of which the two components are necessary to one another. Um, okay, she then takes you through readings of gender relations that she considers valuable but insufficient. And I've given you, in particular, Marxism and psychoanalysis, which are the two main cases. And those are both schools of thought she takes enormously seriously. And do you see, and her reading of Marx here, I think, is quite good, and her reading of Freud is quite good. I mean, she basically considers them both very insightful, very important, but inadequate for fully grasping the situation of women. Um, and she appreciates that for Marx in this authentically democratic society that he's fantasizing about the end of history, there's going to be no place for the other. But where she can't follow him is that she says that for Mar Marx is too reductionist. For Marx, the root cause of everything comes down to the socioeconomic base. It comes down, everything is determined by economic relations. She says you can't reduce the idea of womanhood to economic relations. You can't just deduce the oppression of women from the existence of private property. The relationship of men and women cannot be reduced to a class conflict. That doesn't mean that private property isn't a problem and it doesn't mean that there's no class conflict. It just means that it's not enough. You have to get beyond historical materialism to get all aspects of this. Huh. Rationalist materialism, she says, also ignores sexuality. And sexuality is very important to her. The sexual instinct, she says, cannot be regulated. According to Freud, it might even possess an inherent denial of its own satisfaction. What is certain is that there, it cannot be integrated into the social sphere because there is an eroticism, a revolt of the instant against time, of the individual against the universal to try to channel and exploit it, risk killing it, because live spontaneity cannot be disposed of like inert matter, nor can it be compelled in a way freedom can be. You see, you see Bergson's influence here, too. That for her, the realm of sexuality and the realm of eroticism is a realm of freedom. You know, and what is kind of curtailing that freedom has a lot to do with the vulnerability to pregnancy. So anyway, so Marxism is too reductionist. And she's going to kind of critique Marx via Freud and then go on to Freud and say psychoanalysis is also too reductionist. It's too deterministic because Freud is rejecting existential choice in favor of Eros and Thanatos and these hardwired drives and repression into the unconscious that happens whether you want it to or not. Um, sexuality is very important to her, but she doesn't feel that everything can be reduced to sexuality. Um, she's also kind of skeptical about what she quotes from Freud as the value generally given to the penis. It is impossible to account for this without starting from an existential fact, she writes. The subject's tendency towards alienation. Here we're back to alienation, the temptation of alienation. Women are also constantly, you know, tempted by the possibility of alienation. The subject's tendency towards alienation, the anxiety of his freedom, leads the subject to search for himself and things, which is a way to flee from himself. 
We think, she says, using the royal we, that woman has to choose between the affirmation of her transcendence and her alienation as object. She is not a plaything of contradictory drives. You know, so she feels Freud is too reductionist, Marx is too reductionist. Okay, so what do we do then? Um, oppression at its root cause comes about by the tendency, the tendency we have to flee from ourselves by alienating ourselves in this otherness. Okay, so again, the, the, the temptation of alienation, the tendency to flee from our freedom. Remember that, that fantastic quote, I, I like my favorite quote from Dialectic of Enlightenment that Marx and Adorno have about how um, the, the, the temptation to flee from the I adheres to the I in all stages. So we're always tempted to flee from our own subjectivity even as we're tempted to grab it. Okay. So she's looking at women as, as kind of torn between our desire for our freedom, for wanting to take hold of our freedom, and the ease of falling into the role of object. So when she talks about imminence and transcendence here, it's a slightly different spin from the spin Satra gives it, but not so much so. She uses it somewhat like the in itself and the for itself, but imminence here is very connected to facticity. Can women break three, free from facticity, from the situation in which we're given, and act on the world, transform the world? Um, demand that we be, we have the possibility of transcendence to go beyond. Remaining the object, and this is really like the crux of her argument, and the self-criticism kind of on behalf of women, is, is the temptation. It's the temptation of inauthenticity, it's the temptation to flee from the burden of responsibility. It's the temptation to fail to look our human finitude in the face with eyes wide open, to fall into that kind of getting for fallen into the das Mannselbst. Indeed, the ethical urge, she says, of each individual to affirm his subjective existence, there's also the temptation to forego liberty. And so she's accusing women here of often often living in bad faith, you know, of failing to take responsibility to demand their freedom and their transcendence. If women, she says, seems to be the inessential, which never becomes the essential, it is because she herself fails to bring about this change. Um, she doesn't believe that equality needs to mean sameness. Um, she doesn't believe that equality needs to, to, to mean the abolition of the spontaneity of eroticism and the spontaneity of sexuality. She doesn't believe that it needs to erase differences between men and women. She believes that desire is a good thing and that reciprocity is possible. You know, and she's going to make the, the argument, and this is where I kind of want to take you at the end if I can get get you this far in my next two minutes, that women, by being in this object-like state, are basically imprisoning men as well. The woman, she says, confined to innocence, tries to keep man in this prison as well. All oppression, she writes, creates a state of war. Today, the combat is taking another form. Instead of wanting to put man in prison, woman is trying to escape from it 
You know, she no longer seeks to drag him into the realms of innocence, but tries to emerge in the light of transcendence. A man, she says, is so consumed by the concern to appear male, important, superior, he play acts so that others will play act with him. He's aggressive and nervous. He's hostile to women because he's afraid of them. And he's afraid of them because he's afraid of the character with whom he's assimilated. What time and energy he wastes in getting rid of, idealizing, transposing his complexes, seducing women, fearing women. You know, he would be liberated, she says, with their liberation. Man would be liberated with the liberation of women. But this is exactly what he fears because people fear taking a hold of their own subjectivity, the temptation to flee from subjectivity. And so this book, it doesn't end with Hegelian reconciliation, but it does end much more optimistically with the possibility, not the inevitability of a kind of teleological reconciliation, but the possibility if we take hold of our subjectivity and demand it and demand that right to, to transcendence of a kind of reciprocal freedom and a reciprocal subjectivity. You know, a free autonomous subjects reciprocally and with desire acknowledging one another. Um, if when the slavery of half of humanity is abolished and with it the whole hypocritical system it implies, then the division of humanity will be able to reveal its authentic meaning. Um, okay. Let me, um, let, me, let me end with, the most important thing for her is the question of freedom. It is the freedom to claim one's subjectivity, to demand it, and the responsibility to hold it, and the generosity that that involves. Because instead of man crushing women, which just gives him inadequate recognition anyway, they could both be living a more authentic life and a more fulfilled life through a kind of free recognition between equally autonomous and free subjects. And so I wanna, I, I wanna end with this, I always think of the Polish insurrectionary slogan, which is for our freedom and yours. We're fighting for our freedom and yours. It is not a zero sum game for de Beauvoir. You know, it's, it's the opposite of that. Without any kind of teleology, she says, yes, we can. We can take hold of our freedom, and that can be for our freedom and yours, for both of our freedom. Okay, I'll see you on Wednesday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy. <laughs>